Uh, Father, thanks for giving us the the evening to be together. <clears throat> We're grateful that uh, we can come and study your word again. And we just pray that you would help us to understand what we need to take away tonight and uh, that you would give us uh, hearts that um, love you more. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so tonight... It's, uh, it's probably good we got a little smaller crowd because we're talking about some of the most controversial things in all of Christianity today, and it's going to be great. So, um, no, no, I mean, it, there, are some, there are some things, but we're going to have fun with it and, and be gracious to each other if we disagree, you know. But we're talking about the doctrine of salvation. So this is a really broad category of uh, theology. It's actually... It probably should be its own 12-week series in and of itself. Um, but I think it's, it's going to be good for us to just do a quick flyover. Just just, I just want to acknowledge at the beginning, it is a flyover. So we can go way, way deeper on all these things, but we have to talk through um, kind of more big picture. And I'll, I'll do my best to answer questions as we go um, and, and that kind of thing. But we're going we're gonna to be talking about some pretty cool stuff. So... Here's the overarching thing that we're looking at. Um, the doctrine of salvation is, is something that's referred to as soteriology. So that's the technical term for this. So like I said, soteriology is such a broad category of, of theology that we could do a 12-week series just on these things easily. Um, e- easily. So uh, if you go to a seminary, they normally break the systematic theology classes down into systematic theology 1, 2, and 3. And, um, and two, systematic theology two, tends to be just on soteriology in most seminaries. So that uh, can give you an idea of like a whole semester just on these things. Um, and we're going to do it in a night. So that's going to be very broad brushes. Um, but this branch of theology called soteriology explores why and how God saves us through Jesus. So... Normally, you present this in, in two parts. We've already looked at one part, uh, which is the atonement of Jesus. So you, you look at the accomplishment of Jesus' death, but, but then you also look at a second category, which is what we'll talk about tonight. Uh, it's the application of salvation. So how does God actually apply salvation to us? And that's what we get to talk about tonight. So uh, we looked at the atonement in a, a couple weeks ago. We'll look at the application today. Um, and basically we're going to hone in at least for a good chunk of tonight on Romans 8, 29 and 30. So if you have a Bible and you want to go there, you can, cause we will, we'll get there. But I, I do want to talk about one thing before we get to that passage. Um, this is not technically a soteriology subject, but I think there's no other place to put it. And I think it's also a really important subject. <laughs> so I want to just spend the first few minutes talking about something called common grace um, so common grace is, um, like it says, is grace from God that he gives to people innumerable blessings, it's like uncountable blessings that are not a part of salvation. So the word common here is referring to the fact that it's common to anybody. It's not restricted to just believers. So again, this is a whole separate subject from the bulk of what we're going to deal with tonight, but I, I thought... This is important. Common grace is, is a really good way for us to think about the, the Lord's kindness to us. 
So let me just give you a few examples of this. And again, we'll fly through this quick because the bulk of our time we need to talk about other things. Uh, but there's uh, examples of common grace all over. One is the physical realm. So the, the world we live in. Uh, the sun was shining today. It was a glorious day. And I enjoyed it. I was out there a little bit and I enjoyed it. And as a Christian, I could say, God, thanks for this day. It was a wonderful, enjoyable, sunny day. Spring is in the air. It's a good thing. But the fact that I'm a Christian doesn't change the fact that somebody who's not a Christian also enjoyed today too, right? Because God is kind and he's gracious. He makes the sun shine on the righteous and the unrighteous, those who are right with him, those who aren't. We get to experience his kindness. So Matthew 5, 44 and 45 says this, Acts 14, 16 to 17, Genesis 39, 5 uh, basically unpacks that God provided the Egyptians with food through Joseph. And the Egyptians weren't in covenant relationship with God, but he was kind to give them food. Uh, Psalm 145.9 and uh, 15 to 16 in that same Psalm. So lots of passages on how God blesses people physically in this world. There's also uh, common grace in the intellectual realm. So God gives people intellect and uh, knowledge and the ability to, to figure out what's going on uh, in the world. And that's seen in John 1 9, Romans 1 21, Acts 17, 22 and 23, where these people are not necessarily believers, but God gives to them wisdom or knowledge. Uh, and so, what that means practically is that all science and technology, and we're not just talking about technology in terms of what we think. We think of technology as anything that was invented after we were born. But technology is anything that we figured out how to do something with and make it better. So uh, farming, a lot of farming was the early tech in the, in the early days of humanity and figuring out how to do that kind of stuff. Um, and obviously now we think of electronics and stuff. But, but all science, all technology that's, that's carried out by non-Christians is a result of common grace. Because God gives people the ability to think and figure it out. So that's, that's a good thing. Uh, the fact that I have these electronic things in front of me, um, I've got this phone that's recording this, that's going to go onto the internet after this class, and other people who aren't in this room can hear this and, and hopefully be helped by it. That doesn't change the fact that the person who built that phone maybe wasn't a Christian and probably wasn't a Christian. God still empowered them to do that. And God can take this stuff and use it for redemptive purposes or we can use it for harmful purposes. But that's, uh, that's the intellectual realm. We also have the moral realm of common grace. So basically this means that God is kind to make people not as crazy evil as they could be, right? Uh, thankfully, like you don't go to most of the time to a place with a lot of people and get hurt. Like sometimes, obviously psychotic things can happen, but but most of the time, we just go through life, and most people, whether they're Christians or not, have a sense of right and wrong, moral values. Obviously, as Christians, we understand that true morality and true God-honoring lives, lives are dependent on Jesus. But, but those who are outside of Christ can also make decent decisions and be decent people. So Luke 6.33 talks about that. Um, Romans 2.14 and 15 do as well. And, and then you see common grace in the creative realm as well. So you don't have to be a Christian 
to be a good artist or a chef or a writer or a musician or a filmmaker. And I would actually argue that Christians do worse at these things most of the time than non-Christians. I don't know why that is. It just seems to be the case. Like, just watch a Christian movie sometime and then compare that to a great movie. And it's just going to be, it's going to fall flat most of the time. But God can bless the world through these things, even if they're not done by Christians. And then um, last but not least here, we've got the societal realm of common grace. So basically this is God gives us government to keep people from being as wicked as they could possibly be, right? And, and so governments are not inherently Christian or non-Christian. It just, you know, they're kind of a neutral platform and there can be Christians in government and there can be non-Christians in government and, uh, and yet God's common grace sometimes makes it work. It doesn't always work. We know that. Government's kind of a sketchy thing sometimes, but we have, a, we have good common grace. So Romans 13 is a good passage for that. So uh, the idea of common grace is that it does not save people. People are not saved through God's just general kindness to his world, but his kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, which is what Romans 2 verse 4 says. So that's... Um, not, not exactly where we're going ultimately tonight, but I, I don't have anywhere else to put common grace, so I thought I'd do the quick fly through there on those things. So any, any quick questions on that before we jump into the real, real crazy stuff? So it's great crazy, but still going to be interesting. Now that all makes sense? Cool, cool. We'll keep going. All right, so the rest of our time, here's what we're doing. We're talking about the doctrine of salvation, which is generally categorized as the order of salvation. Now, there's a lot of debate among theologians as to where things in this list fall in the order. Uh, This list is the typical Reformed Christian perspective, not Reformed Christian in the denominational sense, but those who have found their tradition coming from the Reformation, this is generally where most of us would land. Not, probably not everyone, uh, you know, but, but mostly this is a reformed position. So you've got, um, we've got five things we're talking about tonight. And then next week we actually have five more things uh, that are more related to sanctification. So that's why we're saving them for next week. But here's what you have. You have election, uh, which is that, the doctrine that says God chooses to save people. Secondly, you have the effectual call. So God calls people through the message of salvation, through the preaching of God's word. You have regeneration, which is a fancy word for being born again. You have conversion, which is faith and repentance. And then you have justification, which means you have a right standing before God. Now, as, as you think about the order of salvation, and the, you got these five things, don't think of it as a sequential first this, then this, then this, then this. A lot of these things happen simultaneously and concurrently and, and that kind of thing. This is not meant to be an exact science as to first step that was this, second step was this, on and on. It's just meant to give us a helpful category for understanding the components and the parts of salvation as God brings it to us through Jesus. So don't, don't get so hung up on, okay, well, does that come before that or this before that? You know, there's, there's lots of debate between Christians of, 
of goodwill that would disagree on where we'd put things in this list. And I don't think it's as big of an issue to fight over those things as much as just let's look at the pieces and we can arrange those pieces however we want. But but because um, the Bible doesn't really give us a, a total exhaustive list. It does give us a, a short list, though. And, and so I think that's where we're going to get to Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is the list that is in the Bible, and it's the list that we need to at least acknowledge that these things are in the proper order. Okay? So whatever other ones I put in there may or may not be exactly in the right order, or they may happen simultaneously to some of these things. But, but here's what Romans 8, 29 to 30 says. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So you'll notice I didn't have glorified in the list of five things we just had on the screen. The reason for that is we're talking about that next week. So we will get there. Um, but what you're seeing in this is a, is a basic order of salvation from the scriptures that goes like this, foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So those are some loaded terms. And uh, that's probably the most controversial stuff in, in Christian theology, maybe outside of end times theology. That's pretty contentious too. Uh, but this is a pretty contentious one among Christians. And, and again, I just want to remind you that you can be a Christian and disagree with some aspects of how this works. Um, and we can be gracious to each other. I'm going to present my, my position on this. And you, I hope, will think through it and not just go, well, that's what Pastor Tom said. Therefore, that's the right way. I hope you'll take this, study this, think through it. And you may come to different conclusions than I have. Uh, and we can have those wonderful discussions. And that's really what it should be. Um, but, I, but I really want to walk through these components. And the first one is this big, scary word, uh, predestined. Let's talk about what that means. So the, the technical term that is used in theology for this is election. <clears throat> election. Uh, so election, which is sometimes called predestination in the Bible, sometimes it's referred to as chosen, You'll, you'll see that word quite a bit as well on the same concept, is the act, this election is the act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, but not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So that position uh, could be nuanced differently if you are from a different theological stream than I am. Okay, this is a pretty reformed position. And I'm going to just show my cards on that. Okay, so, uh, you know, guys like John Calvin, guys like Thomas Cranmer, guys like uh, Martin Luther, I think, had some different uh, perspectives on this than some of those other guys did. But, but guy, a lot of people from the Reformation um, had this position that, that the Bible teaches that we were chosen in advance uh, by God, not on account of what the, he saw us saw in us, but just because he wanted to save us. And that opens up a big can of worms, but, but look, at the, look at the passages. 
So this is just a sampling, actually. Um, you have Acts 13, 48, Romans 8, 29 to 30, which we just read, Romans 9, 11 to 13, uh, Ephesians 1, 4 to 6, and then verse 11, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 to 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, 1 Peter 1, 1, and 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. And that's just a sampling. Like, I just could, didn't, couldn't fit it all on the screen. So we're, we're just going with these. Um, but there's a, there's a lot of teaching in the Bible on this point. And it's in black and white. Now, how we understand this and wh- what we do with it, you know, that's, that's something we can talk through. But I don't think it's up for debate that God's word teaches us that we have been predestined, chosen, called by him. And so the, the, one of the clearest texts on, the, is, on this is Ephesians 1. So uh, we can look at some of these other ones as well. But look, look at Ephesians 1. And it's, again, it's just, it's just in black and white as we read it. I, I think we need to sometimes get ourselves away from the theological, like head in the clouds, and just look at the clear reading of Scripture, which, which is this. It says, uh, we'll start in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so, so there's where the Bible teaches that we've been chosen in Jesus before the foundation of the world. So it wasn't based on you doing something for God to go, wow. I need them on my team. That's not how this works. God looked at you before the foundation of the world, before you were a thought in anyone's mind besides God's. He chose us in him. That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And then go down to verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, there's that word again, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So when you look at this definition on the screen that I, that I have here, I think this is from, mostly from Wayne Grudem's text, but I, I adapted a little bit, I think. But it, basically, the, the components of this definition are right here in this text. That we were chosen before creation, before the foundation of the world. Um, he, he chooses not on any foreseen merit, but purely because of his good pleasure, because of what God wants to do. And, and that's, that's um, really important. And it's, it's biblical. Now, again... There's, this is really a loaded issue, and I know a lot of you, maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this concept, uh, but maybe it's something that you've had some experience with, and, and you're kind of like, ooh, I don't like that. We'll, we'll talk through some of these things uh, as we get through it, but, but let me just take you to some other passages before we move on. Ephesians 1 is what we just looked at, but look at Acts 13, 48. Um, I, this one is pretty clear, too. It says, um, uh, 13.48. Okay, sorry. It's looking at 38. I was like, that's not the right one. Um, and when the Gentiles heard this, heard what? Well, if you look back at the prior verse, 
he quotes from Isaiah and says, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So the, the Jewish people were meant to be a light for the Gentiles. And so when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So there's that, there's that concept. Okay, it's a different term, but it's the same concept that we were called to eternal life, appointed for it by God. That's there. We read Romans 8, uh, 29 through 30. We're going to read Romans 9 specifically uh, tonight, later on as we get through these slides. But just flip over to 1 Thessalonians, uh, and then we'll look at 2 Thessalonians as well, and then we'll, we'll call that good. And you can look at the rest of these on your own. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 to 5. It says, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Why? Verse 5. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So Paul starts this letter to the Thessalonians with, we know that you've been loved by God, which is echoing back to Ephesians 1, right? In love, he predestined us. So there, we're loved by God that he has chosen you. And he, cho- he knows that they've been chosen because they received the gospel. So we're going to get to that too tonight as we work through these things, you know, what that means. But So that's 1 Thessalonians. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.13, just flip over a page or two. Um, he says, But we also ought to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. So you're loved by the Lord. Because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So God chose. He uses that same phrase again. Um, I think it is in 1 Peter 1.1 1, 1 that he refers to the people he's writing to as the elect exiles. Um, so there's that concept in 1 Peter 1. And then in, in chapter 2, 9, and 10, he says we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Right, so, so there's those concepts. And again, this is just scratching the surface of this doctrine. Uh, but I want you to see it's in black and white. It's in the Bible. It's not being made up by, by you know, Calvinistic theologians. Like it is in the Bible. Um, and that's, we just need to see that. It's in black and white. Uh, so, so the question, though, is how does the New Testament present this teaching? What is it meant to do for us? Why does it tell us this? What is the kind of the application of it in the scriptures? Well, there's a a number of things. Uh, One, it presents this doctrine as a comfort um, that God always works for our good. This this is from Romans 8, 28 to 30. So 29 and 30 is what we read as our kind of our order of salvation, right? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and called and justified and glorified, right? But just before that is verse 28, which we, hopefully you know this and hopefully you're, you're aware of it, is that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And then the next word in verse 29 is for or because. So it's actually presented in Romans as a comfort to, his, to God's people. 
that we know that God is working for our good because he has set love on us uh, before we were even a thought to anyone besides him. He, he chose to love us and call us to himself. And so that's a comfort. That should be comforting. We also saw this in Ephesians 1, that the second reason, or the second way that it's presented is as a reason to praise God. Right? Oh, a couple, two or three times in Ephesians 1, in that opening section, Paul writes the words, to the praise of his glorious grace. So, so the glorious grace of Jesus, as it is on display in God's saving grace through election, should be a reason for us to praise God. That's also seen in his writing to the Thessalonians as well. Right? That, that we are to praise God because of these things. Um, so it's also, this one is uh, probably not the most logical one for us, but we need to see it. It's true. Uh, the doctrine of election is also meant in the scriptures to be an encouragement to share Christ. Um, most of the time when you encounter this doctrine, the biggest pushback you get is, well, if God chooses people, then why would we bother sharing the gospel? Wouldn't they just magically show up? You know? um, and here's the problem with that view, um, is that God is sovereign over both the end result and the means to get people to the end result. So God chose people before the foundation of the world. That doesn't mean he didn't choose to use the preaching and explanation of the gospel to get them there. So we, we need to recognize that God is sovereign over the whole process. But there's two places where this is uh, 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 meant as an encouragement to keep going. One is 2 Timothy 2.10. Uh, this is where Paul is writing. We just, work, we just worked through this passage, I don't know, at church a few a few weeks back, maybe a few months back. I don't remember. It's been a while, right? But um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, he says, Therefore I endure everything, and everything there refers to his suffering, his hardship, his imprisonment in the context. I endure everything. Why? For the sake of the elect. Why? that they may also obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So Paul is saying, I'm doing all of this so that the elect, those that God has chosen to be saved, will actually be saved. There's ends and means at work, right? The, the end is that, yes, God is going to save, but he also wants us to do it through uh, faithful preaching of the gospel. Um, and so we actually see this as well in the Apostle Paul's life in Acts 18, 9 and 10. Uh, this is where Paul is in Corinth. And uh, Corinth, at this point in time, does not really have much of a Christian community. Paul's there planting the church. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of dicey. A lot of times he goes to places and he doesn't get a warm welcome as you read the book of Acts. But, but look at what... Um, the Lord says to Paul in verse 9 and 10. It says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. I wonder if that means somebody will attack him not to harm him, but uh, you know, it's, it's, it's there, right? He, 
No one will attack you to harm you. I'm just making a joke, sorry. For I have many in this city. This is the key. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now it's important to note that when God said to Paul in this vision, I have many in this city who are my people, pretty much Paul's the only one at this point, right? Like there, there isn't at this point a church in Corinth. That's why he's there. So, so there aren't believers that are known at this point, but God knows who they are and he says that they're his people. And so he says, Paul, don't stop preaching the word of God. Don't stop talking about the gospel because there are people in this city who are mine. So, there's, so that should actually give you confidence to preach the gospel because some people will actually respond to it because God is the one who's going to get them there. Through, through the means of your friendship with them or the words you share or the preaching that they hear or whatever, else, whatever means God uses to get them there, he's going to get them there. That's, that should encourage us and strengthen us to actually be about sharing the gospel because God is in control of who uh, is saved at the end of the day. Um, so I know I've unpacked a, a lot of, uh, or I've opened up a can of worms and, and maybe you have a lot of questions. So I'm going to try to get ahead of some of your questions by talking it through some misunderstandings and just bring out some of the, maybe a couple of the, the most common uh, points of opposition to this. Um, so here's, here's one misunderstanding. Um, sometimes election is presented as fatalism. So you know what fatalism is? It's basically the idea that we're just robots, we're programmed, we're, we don't have freedom of will, um, we're just kind of moving along like, like puppets on, a, on strings and God's just dragging us along. That's not what the doctrine of election teaches. Um, we're not robots, we're not puppets. But here's the problem. We talked about this several weeks ago. We have a sin nature, and it's bad, right? Like, it's really bad. We talked about how it goes all the way down to every part of us. Now, how do you, how do you get beyond that? How do you do, like, that's the fundamental problem, is that if we truly do believe that the, what the Bible says about our sin nature, which is, that we are dead in sin. We're, that, that's not like, oh, we're just injured and we've got to drag ourselves to help. We're dead in sin. Ephesians 2 talks about that. Uh, Colossians talks about that. Th- all throughout, like, it's one of the common themes that Paul brings out. And we are dead sinners. So the, the question is, is I, when I was um, probably 18, 19 years old, was when I started being exposed to these ideas uh, in Bible college, and I hated it. I hated it. I really did. I understand if you're sitting here going, this is, this is awful. I hate this stuff. Like, I don't believe that God is like this. You're, you're in, um, you might not be in good company, but you're at least with me, right? Okay, I was there at one point in time. And so I get it. But the thing that got me to begin to turn, it wasn't an overnight moment, it, it, but it began to get me to turn was that reality that we are dead sinners and how can a dead person do something for themselves? A dead person can't walk themselves into church and walk themselves into the grave. They're carried, right? Because they're dead. And that's, I know that's stark and kind of, 
you know, insensitive, but that's the reality, right? We know that. And that's how we're described spiritually. So election is not fatalistic, but it's a necessary step for God to get us to come to Jesus. And yes, we will come to Jesus. Yes, we will believe. We're going to get there. That's, that's part of this deal. But if we don't have God doing the initiating work to get us there, then, then we're doomed. We're stuck. So left to ourselves, we never, ever would come to him. That's the, that's the reality. We just never would. Even if we somehow could, we wouldn't because our sin is so deep in us that we would just never get there. Um, second misunderstanding I want to address is um, the understanding sometimes is that God, uh, this is from Romans 8, uh, is that that word foreknown, or that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So that has led people to go, okay, so the predestination thing is actually not really predestination. It's just rooted in God looking into the future, seeing what we're going to do in advance, and then making a choice to save us because we already in the future decided to be saved. That's a pretty common view um, because people are uncomfortable with a lot of the, the, the stuff that we're talking about. So they're trying to make it a little bit more palatable to themselves and go, okay, okay, no, no, it's not that God just for no reason that I can tell chose me. It's actually because God saw me in the future and knew that I would believe, therefore he predestined me for that, which isn't, like, this doesn't make sense. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see that, but clearly it's not based on his foreknowledge of our faith because he, he had chose us before the foundation of the world, not just in terms of time, but in terms of existence and all those things. And so salvation based on foreknowledge, even if you put some predestination in there, um, is still salvation based on something that I do or that you do. And that's a problem. That's a big problem for, for those of us who believe that salvation is purely by grace. It can't be purely by what we do. So there's, there's an issue there. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that. And then um, here's, here's where I was at. Um, and maybe some of you are here too. Um, some might say the doctrine of election is unfair. And I don't like the idea of a God who would play favorites. Um, okay, so God knew you would ask that. And um, he gave us Romans 9 to answer that question. It's almost like he expected us to ask it. It's amazing. So turn to Romans 9 if you have a Bible. Otherwise, I'll, I'll read it for us. But Romans 9 is um, worth a very deep study that we don't have time for tonight. But I want to hone in on, on this, uh, at least just for a few minutes. So, um, okay. Basically, I'm trying to figure out where to, where to start in here. Um, let, let's start basically at verse uh, 9, okay? And then we'll work our way down from there. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So he's talking about this whole thing with Abraham, Sarah, having Isaac, on and on, right? And it says, um, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So you have Abraham and then Isaac, and now Isaac's having kids. 
And Rebecca, Isaac's wife, is having twins, if you remember the story from Genesis. Verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, now that seems extremely unfair, doesn't it? Here's two two babies in a womb. They're, They're twins. Esau is actually the older, who would have and should have been given the the birthright and the inheritance. But God, according to the Apostle Paul, according to God's own word, said, you know, they didn't do anything good or bad. Neither of them did anything to deserve one thing or the other, but I'm just going to choose Jacob instead of Esau. It's like, well, that's not fair. This is, this is how Paul's trying to explain the doctrine of election to us. So look at what it's going. So then he begins to ask a string of questions, questions that he's expecting us to ask. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God not just because of this? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on human will or exertion, so trying, but it depends on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, what was the purpose that he's referring to with Pharaoh? That Pharaoh's going to harden his heart and refuse to let the Israelites go and then get drowned in the Red Sea. Like that's, that seems crazy to us, right? But God is saying, I have this right to do this because he created us and he does what he wants. So then, verse 18, he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay, well, that, that makes it more difficult. So let's keep going. Verse 19, so then you will say to me, Paul goes, he knows what you're going to say. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Literally, are we just robots then, Paul? Who can resist his will if this is the way God operates? Now look at the answer, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? So we'll stop there. I mean, it keeps going and it can get, it can get really interesting from there. But like, let's just think about this. Um. This, is, this maybe isn't a satisfying answer, but it is an answer. And the answer is, is when we ask, well, how can this be? Basically, the answer is, shut up. <laughs> I mean, okay, like that's basically, the, who are you, oh man, to say to God, why did you make me like this? That's very dissatisfying <laughs> for those of us who want the answer, but that is still an answer. Basically, God just says, you know what? <clears throat> It's not up to you. It's not your deal. Because. Because. 
Because I said so, right? That's, if you're a parent, that's, that's your answer. And that is a legitimate answer. So, um, so that, there's, <laughs> I just opened up a huge can of worms. So questions, answer, uh, we'll, do, we'll do this for a few minutes. And listen, I, I, nothing but grace here, it, I, especially if you're you know, thinking through this for the first time, you probably have a million questions. Um, we don't have time for a million questions, but, and, and just for the sake of time, let's, let's keep the comments to a limit here. And just, if there are questions for clarification, I, I'd be glad to help answer. Yeah. I think it's just that you have to accept that he is sovereign yeah. overall. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you have to accept that. Yep. Okay. No, that's true. And it's hard. It is hard because we, we want to be sovereign ourselves. And I think this doctrine teaches us that some things are out of our own control. But again, we're going to get to, as we walk through these things, we're going to get to why this isn't fatalism, this isn't robotic, this isn't puppetry. There is legitimate choice. There is legitimate decision-making. We, we do that. We do that. We'll get to that. But this is the first step in the, in the process, is that God chooses to bring salvation as he wills, as he wants. That's not an easy thing to swallow, but it's, it's in black and white. Yes? So I do have a couple things, but I'll... I'll we can talk after, <laughs> yeah. Um, so with predestination and whatnot, does that cancel out the, the idea that people who were predestined can help to... Um, bring others to God in a sense to you know evangelize to people that can also bring people to God or is that just the predestined are you know that's it you know like does that limit it to the people who are predestined or does that you know yeah that's an interesting question and I I, I don't know that we have an answer for that uh, in terms of I think only God truly knows who who are in and who are out, right? So, but but as far as the other side of it is, I think we have to work off the the assumption that everybody is. Just work off of that assumption, sure. and then you share the gospel, and we'll let God take care of the response to that. Um, but yeah, it, it is a good question, and it's it's not one I don't I don't think I have an answer that I can give you. Just like maybe he's predestined to talk to the predestined. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Timothy would say that God desires that everyone would be saved That's right. the knowledge of the truth. That's right. And we won't maybe know the end results, but God does. Yes. So we've got to assume that everybody's fair game. That's right. There is a rather famous person, Michael Landon, okay. who, if you know, did a lot of good TV shows, many, many TV shows that he was always shown as a Christian in his works and he died a non-believer. Mm-hmm. Um, if you read up on that, Melissa Gilbert on her on practically on his deathbed was praying and asking him to take salvation. Mm-hmm. And even though he did Highway to Heaven, he was mm-hmm. always teaching, um, and he wrote many of these scripts. And he said, "I do not understand why God is using me if this is a God out there, mm-hmm. but I don't believe." I mean, the strangest thing in the world was that to me mm. is that he did all these TV shows, all works for God, but that didn't save him if he's yeah. not saved. But he totally would not. He did not believe. He, yeah. On his deathbed, he did not believe. If you know what I've all read on that, and 
kind of goes to show you God was going to use him, and that probably, you know, a lot of people were exposed through his um, TV shows mm -hmm. and the things that he wrote. You would have thought he was a huge believer, and yet he openly said, "I, I don't believe in God." Yeah, that's wow. which, which is so crazy. It is. Yeah, if you if you read up on that, I always thought he must be. You know, Me too. Yes. We'll talk to, I'll talk to you, Brahm, in, the, in a little afterwards, okay? So we got to keep moving through um, just because we got so much more That's to talk one about. one little quick one. Yes. On that first slide, you said some. And maybe I'm just being my perfectionist. Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I would, my mind goes to all. So for hmm. election, all, uh, all are saved. Through the process of God's election. Oh, okay. Not some. I see what you're saying. Okay. I, I don't know if, I mean, yeah. maybe it's being nitpicky, but I, I think that scripture, I mean, all the scriptures you read mm. were kind of that way. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to go back and I can't see my all my slides at once, but yeah. No worries. Okay, well, let's go to the second step here then. Uh, we're looking at the the order of salvation. So you have election. Number two, and again, these are not always in like numerical order in terms of how they reach us, but second thing we're going to look at is the effectual call. Okay, so the effectual or effective calling, because Grudem calls it the effective calling. Most people call it the effectual calling. Uh, so either way is fine. But effectual calling is an act of God the Father speaking through human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. So basically the idea here is that God calls those whom he has predestined, he also called, going back to Romans 8, right? So you have those whom he predestined, he also called. Now that calling, for it to be truly uh, a work of God to save us, is a calling that will be effective to bring about that person to saving faith. So that's why we're calling it the effectual or effective calling. Is that the calling that God extends to those whom he has saved, or, or will save, I should say, is, is going to be heard and responded to. Now, the distinction here is that there is a general call of the gospel to all people. Everyone is welcome to get in on this. But, but only those whom God has chosen to be saved will actually effectively, effectually be, be responding to that call. So we're not saying that we only call those whom we think are, are going to be saved. Like we don't have the list. We don't have the book that Revelation talks about, the Lamb's book of life. We don't have that book. God has that book. So we preach the gospel to all without discrimination and then, but we just know that those who will actually believe and respond will do so because God had done the work of predestining or electing them to come to him. So there's a couple passages here uh, worth looking at. Uh, I think we'll primarily look at uh, John 6, 44, but you can also look at uh, Acts 16, uh, 14, or Romans 10, uh, 14 to 17. But John 6 is a really interesting passage. It comes on the tail end of, or the beginning of the chapter is actually on the um, feeding of the 5,000. 
And the, so he does this miracle. And then the people come back the next day. And uh, he basically tells them, and paraphrasing here, he basically says, listen, you're just here because you got a bunch of food yesterday. You're not really here for me. And then he, then he goes on to tell them that um, if they don't eat his blood, eat his flesh and drink his blood, that they're not, they don't have any part in him. So again, that's, that's a passage that can be in, interpreted some, by just different people different ways. My view on it is that that, interpreta- that that passage rather is to be understood as Jesus saying, listen, you, you have to be here for me. Not, he's not talking about cannibalism. He's not talking about literally eating him or anything like that. He's just simply trying to make a stark, like, here is the reality. You, you're, you can't be here for the bread. You've got to be here for me. But then he says this in verse 44. Um, uh, actually, we can go down to verse, uh, up to verse 38. He says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus came to do the Father's will. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one, here's the key verse, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So, yes, Jesus came in the hope that all would hear and believe. But then he says, there will be those who actually do that. The people who will actually do that are the ones that the Father has drawn to him. And I think, like, Nathan, I'm pretty sure, like, 10, 11 years ago, you you talked to me about this at some point, where uh, when we think about this through water, and maybe you can just correct it, but, like, water in the ground is not going to naturally want to come into the house. You've got to draw it out, right? You've got to make this pump or something pull this water out of the ground. I'm pretty sure you shared that with me at some point years ago, long time ago. I don't know why I just thought about that. But uh, you don't remember, so maybe, I don't know. But, um, but, but is that true? Isn't that, I don't know. Maybe I'm just miss. Right. Yeah. There you go. There's a plumbing lesson for all of you today. Um, but, but that's the idea, is that we're being drawn, uh, even by, uh, even almost, a, not against our wills, but we're, our wills are being conformed to his will as he's drawing us in through this calling to believe and respond in saving faith. So this call, uh, what we would refer to as preaching uh, or teaching, needs to explain the facts about Jesus Right? The facts of salvation, that's, that we are sinners, that Jesus lived a perfect life in our place and died our death and rose again to bring us life with him. Uh, this also needs to include a response uh, or an invitation to respond to Christ through repentance and faith. And it needs to include a promise of forgiveness and eternal life. 
So th that's the, the effectual call is wrapped up in the reality that God has many people in this city who are mine. We don't know who those people are, but God knows who those people are. So our job is to call. Our job is to tell. And God is going to take that calling, that means of preaching or teaching or explanation, and he's going to draw those people who he has actually determined to save to himself because of that, through that call. So that's the effectual call. But that leads to another important question. Well, how are we able to respond to this call if we're sinners all the way down to the, the essence of who we are? How do we actually respond to God's call and believe? Are we just going to do that of our, of our own or does something have to happen first? And that's where the Bible begins to teach us about the doctrine of regeneration. So again, now, this is kind of a question of, well, which comes first? Um, you know, how, how do these things fit into the, the proper order? Like, I don't think that's, that's the main issue. I think we're just looking at the components. So you've got election, you've got calling, but in between calling and actually believing, there's a step. And I think that that step is um, what the Bible teaches is regeneration. So regeneration is the act of God in which he imparts a new spiritual life to us. See, you, you've got to get over the hurdle of your sin in order to get to belief and trust in Jesus. And the only way to get past that hurdle of sin is for God to do a work in your life. And maybe this is concurrent with all the other things we're talking about, but, but he's got to get you your heart to change so that you can actually respond in, in faith. And so we see this all throughout the scriptures. The most well-known um, would probably be t uh, Titus 3, 4 to 7, but there's an Old Testament passage in Ezekiel uh, 36, 26, and 27. I'll, this is a promise uh, from the prophet Ezekiel who is telling us this will happen someday. And then we'll flip over to Titus Three, but you could also look at Ephesians 2, 1 to 4, or John 1, 13, or John 3, 3 through 8, which is where he talks about the, the new birth. Uh, but in Ezekiel 36, here's what he says, um, 26 to 27, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So you see what the prophet Ezekiel is telling us will happen through the gospel ultimately. This is just a foreshadowing of it, a prophecy about it, is that we have, he describes hearts of stone that need to be transplanted with a heart of flesh. And that's the concept that the Bible, that we would call in theolo theological circles, we'd call this regeneration, being given a new heart, a new life, uh, an, a new ability because of a new heart to actually believe and trust in Jesus. And that's where you get to Titus uh, chapter 3, 4 to 7, where, where he, Paul actually talks about this happening in the context of salvation. Um, he says... 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Right? So, so God saved us not by works, not by our own abilities, not by any of that, but purely by his mercy. But look at how. Paul actually tells us how he did this. He uses this word by. Okay, so this is the a way in which he goes about this. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Both of which Ezekiel talks about, right? That we're, we're getting a new heart, a living heart, instead of a stone heart. And we're getting the Spirit of God within us. So both of those things are being referred to here by Paul as God saves his people. He does so by the washing of regeneration, giving us a new life, and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. So regeneration is the act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. Jesus talks about this in John 3 to Nicodemus, and he uses the analogy of being born again. um, And basically says, listen, you can't come to me unless you have been given a new life. And and Nicodemus doesn't understand that concept. But you can read that in John 3. It's, It's a really amazing passage. So in order for us to believe the gospel, through faith and repentance, which we're going to look at next, we have to have hearts that are made alive to Christ. And, and so this, this becomes the, the kind of the theological debate is which comes first, uh, tra- you know, belief or regeneration. And, and I would lean towards regeneration comes first, but I think it's concurrent. I really do. I think they're, they're pretty much simultaneous. Um, but I, I just don't see how you get to belief outside of a new heart. So that's my personal view. Some people would disagree and say, no, no, we have faith and then God gives us a new heart. But either way, no one's denying that, that we have to be given new hearts to come to Christ. So, so let's keep going. Um, we've got then conversion, which is uh, another way of talking about faith and repentance. So you've got election, right? You've got, uh, uh, yeah, election and then calling and then uh, what we just talked about, which I'm now blanking on, right? Regeneration, there it is. And then conversion is next. Okay, again, we're not talking about this in like terms of like a staircase. We're just talking about them in their logical form. Okay, so conversion is our willing response to the gospel in which we sincerely repent of sin and place our trust in Christ for salvation. So, so again, we're not talking about predestination leading to you know, being fatalistic or just you have no choice in the matter or God's going to drag you kicking and screaming and you're going to hate every second. Of, like, none of that is, is how it works. The, the reality is that nobody comes to Christ unless they want to come to Christ. The, the question is, is how do we want to come to Christ? We want to come to Christ because he's done a work in us to get us there. But we still do respond. We still do give our hearts to Jesus. This is, this is what happens in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So um, Ephesians 2 basically walks us through a, a good explanation of <coughs> most of these things, if not all of these things, 
chapter one, he brings out the predestination and the calling part. And then uh, chapter two, he talks about the regeneration of our hearts in verse one to four. Uh, and then kind of fleshes that out uh, through yeah, verse four to, four to seven. But then he says in verse eight, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So you have this, we're dead sinners, following the logic of Paul's explanation in chapter 2, we're dead sinners that God made alive, brought regeneration to, and then we were saved through faith, by grace, through faith, through belief, through trust. And so you see this trajectory, right? But there is a genuine and willing response to the gospel. We, we have to get there. And uh, the, the, it's just the, the, main, the main debate between Christians on this issue is, well, who initiates that faith? Like, do we start that process on our own and just purely get compelled by the right, by the right arguments and come to Jesus? Or does Jesus begin that work in us? And my view is that Jesus begins that work in us. And that's why we get there willingly in the end. So conversion is the combination of faith and repentance. And faith um, and repentance go hand in hand. Um, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin, a renouncing of it, and a sincere commitment to forsake it and walk in obedience to Christ. Uh, faith, on the other hand, so if repentance is turning from sin, faith is then turning to Jesus. So these are a, this is a simultaneous act. The word repentance is uh, the Greek word that essentially means to turn around. Um, and so what you're doing is you're turning from sin, but you're turning to Christ in faith. So repentance and faith, they go hand in hand because it's the same motion. You're turning away from your sin and you're turning to Jesus and, and that is a willing act of our hearts to do that. So repentance and faith are what we would refer to in, in theological terms as conversion. Faith and repentance are ongoing throughout the Christian life. So it's not just a once and over situation. It's an ongoing situation for Christians. Now, not to, be, not to say that we lose our salvation and we have to gain it back through faith and repentance. That's, not, that's a terrible, terrible way to live and it's going to crush you. Uh, the Bible teaches us that God has, has secured all those who are his. We'll, we'll talk about that next week. We're going to deal with that in the sanctification discussion. But, um, but we know that the scriptures teach that we are secure in Jesus. Um, so it's not that we repent and, and believe in order to, to stay saved, it's, but it's the ongoing practice of the, someone who is saved. It's actually an evidence of salvation that's taken root in your life. And Martin Luther famously said in his uh, first point of his 95-point thesis that launched the Reformation, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, in Matthew 4, 17, he willed that the entire life of believers be one of repentance. And so we, we have this ongoing call from Jesus to be 
repenting and turning from our sin to Jesus, um, not because we have to somehow re-earn our position with him, but because it's a fruit of salvation in our lives. Um, I didn't put a question slide on, but we'll, I'll stop here because we're going to get onto the probably the biggest subject of the night. Uh, but I want to stop before we launch into that. So anything on these uh, effectual call, um, regeneration, or conversion that we can clarify? Okay. Would it be a quick comment to yeah, say that's that this fine. is like an orange instead of like a stair step? These are all parts of the same. Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think that's, that's a good analogy. Yeah. You're always good with analogies, even when you don't remember that you have one. It's, it's great. <laughs> All right. All right. Well, let's talk about this one. This is going to take a little bit of time to unpack. Um, justification. So those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And then those whom he justified, he also glorified, which we'll dig into next time. But what does it mean to be justified? This is a big one. Justification is the central message of salvation. It really is. This is the heart of salvation. John Calvin called it the main hinge on which salvation turns. Thomas Cranmer, who is the English reformer, and uh, one of the early leaders of the English Reformation, called it uh, the strong rock and foundation of the Christian faith. And Martin Luther also famous reformer, called justification the chief article of Christian doctrine so that if justification has fallen, everything has fallen. So we, gotta, we need to set this up into some historical context because um, this really is central to the Reformed Christian perspective, what we would call Protestant theology now. Um, it really is about justification. So in the, in the 1500s, when Luther and later Calvin and later Cranmer uh, were, were doing their work, they were basically exploring the scriptures and saying, the church has gotten completely off base from salvation. The Catholic church at that time, which was the only church at that time, um, had basically made salvation about indulgences and purchasing people's salvation by giving money to the church, and there was all kinds of abuses and, and mu a much bigger historical deal than we can deal with tonight. But, but people that God raised up in history to, to explore the scriptures, to see it for themselves, and, and to realize that we've missed the mark here brought us back to what biblical Christianity is, or at least much closer to what biblical Christianity is meant to be. And at the center of the Reformation was justification. That how are we right with God? And so the, the issue of justification is central to the Christian gospel because it answers the fundamental question, how can a sinful human be righteous before a holy God? It answers that question. The question is crucial. So... Um, let's just look at a couple passages here uh, to start out. Um, Romans 3, uh, 20, Romans 5, Galatians 2, 15 to 21 are all really key texts on this issue. Um, and then we'll just unpack it as we, as we go through it. But 
Uh, Romans 3.20. Let me pull that out here. So it says this. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, so let's stop there and just think about what the Apostle Paul is saying. By works of the law, no human being will be justified. So we can't be right with God um, without or by and through works of the law. That's what's clear. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Um, So there we're seeing the components of uh, not saved by works of the law, but saved by faith in Christ as a gift. Uh, Flipping over to chapter 5, he says, Therefore, in verse 1, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So there we have been justified by faith. That's what's clear, right? Uh, Galatians 2, 15 to 21. And then I know I haven't defined justification yet. We'll get there in the next slide. But I'm just trying to paint the biblical picture here for you. Galatians 2, 15 to 21. It says, for we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So you hear that repeated phrase, right? No one's justified by works of the law. We're justified by faith, so that uh, we are, so that uh, you know we're not justified by works of the law, right? So, but if we endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So clearly, the New Testament teaches that justification is through faith, not through works. All right, so let's talk about this word, justification. So the word justification comes from the law court, where to justify is a declarative verb. So it is to render a favorable verdict 
to declare a person to be in the right to announce forgiveness in legal terms. So justification is a declaration of righteousness by faith to all who believe in Jesus. That's pretty astounding since we're not actually innocent or righteous. We walk into that court of law as guilty sinners. So how in the world can God just go, okay, you're, you're justified? Well, there's, a, there's an answer to that. The source of justification is God's free grace. The reason that sinners can stand before a righteous judge in heaven and be declared righteous, be declared just or justified is because God just extends his free grace to us. So Romans 3 again, uh, verse 24. We're going to look at that verse here. And this is, um, yeah, just crucial. It says, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance or patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, the basis of justification is that Jesus lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death. And so let's, let's not miss Paul's point in Romans 24 and 25. He's saying that we can be justified because of the works of another standing in our place and because of the, the judgment of another who takes the judgment from us. So we're justified by by faith, by believing in this Jesus who actually lived the perfect sinless life we could never live. And then he died uh, uh, as a propitiation. That, that word means someone who takes wrath and diverts it from, from us to him. So he takes this wrath and becomes the bearer of the wrath of God on the cross. And in that way, he dies our death. He pays for the sins that we actually deserve to pay. But he could do that and stand in our place because he was actually a sinless man uh, who did not have any sin of his own to pay for. So he pays, in, in a legal sense, he pays for all of our sins. And he covers them all by his life and death. And, and so Paul is fleshing this out in Romans 3 in a beautiful way that we're justified as, as by his grace and grace is a gift, right? That's, so that's how he defines it here is his grace as a gift through the redemption, the purchasing of our, of our lives in Christ who God put forward as a propitiation, so the object of wrath by his blood that we receive by faith. So, so that's how guilty sinners can be declared righteous if we put all of our hope in Jesus and throw ourselves on his mercy, he actually takes the, the judgment that we deserve and he takes the sins that we've committed and he puts them upon himself as he dies on the cross. Theologian and pastor John Stott, who uh, he's, he's with the Lord now, he passed away a number of years ago, 
Um, I got to, when I was in, uh, in Bible college, I got to hear him preach. He came to, he's from England, um, but he was in the States for some reason, and we got him to come to our church somehow. I don't know how we got a man like John Stott to preach at our church, but it was amazing. And he was a frail 90-something-year-old dude who got into that pulpit and just preached the paint off the walls. It was amazing. So here's what he says in one of his uh, books. He says, God's saving work was achieved through the bloodshedding that is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. The death of Jesus was the, sorry, autocorrect, didn't catch that one, was the atoning sacrifice because of which God averted his wrath from us, the ransom price by which we have been redeemed, the condemnation of the innocent, that the guilty, that's you and me, might be justified, and the sinless one being made sin for us. This is what Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5, where he, I think it's in verse 21. Um, yeah. It says, For our sake, he, that's God the Father in context here, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin, though he knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is this, the, the great exchange that we see in justification, that, that our sin becomes his sin, though he knew no sin, he was seen and treated as if he was sin. That's an amazing thing. That he's not, he, It doesn't say he made him to be a sinner, It says he made him to be sin. Jesus actually embodied all of the wrongs that we have done. That is incredible and crazy and amazing. So that in him, as we believe in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So we have nothing but sin that we throw on to Jesus. Jesus takes it and becomes sin for us. But in exchange, he throws all of his perfect righteousness onto us an amazing thing the means of justification is faith in Jesus Christ we've been hammering this home because this is the point right we're not justified by works of the law we're not justified by being nice people we're justified by faith in Jesus and this, um, and I'm no, I'm no Luther expert by any means, but uh, I was reading some on Luther's biography and, and years back, and so I'm, find a Lutheran if you need to know more about this. But, um, but I'm, Luther encountered a passage um, that said, uh, I think it's Galatians three eleven, which was quoting Habakkuk two four, um, and it says uh, that the just or the righteous will live by faith. And, and the idea here is that to live by faith in Christ is how we find our righteous position in him, this, this justified position. And, and that changed Luther's whole trajectory as far as I've, I've read on, on his biography. Uh, and so 
that that concept of the just will live by faith that radicalized uh, in in the best way uh, what what that means for salvation is that we are we are sad, we are justified righteous by faith and we and so th- and those who are righteous or are just will live by faith and it's all faith in Christ not faith in anything else that can get us there um, I, I came across this question in the Heidelberg Catechism. I, I quoted from this catechism on Sunday as well. I, I'm not, like, using it a whole lot, but there's, there's just a ton of uh, really helpful stuff in here. And question 60 of this catechism, this was written right around the time of the Reformation, um, late 1500s, early 1600s, something, something like that. Um, and the question is, is how are you righteous before God? Um, and think about being a little kid trying to memorize that. There you go. <laughs> that's the that's the answer. I'm like, oh, and these are meant for kids to be used using. But but look at this. It's an amazing answer. How are you righteous before God? Only by true faith in Jesus. In spite of the fact that my conscience accuses me that I have grievously sinned against all the commands. Of God, and have not kept any one of them, and that I am still even uh, still ever prone to all that is evil. Nevertheless, God, without any merit of my own, out of pure grace, grants me the benefits of perfect expiation of Christ. That's a cleansing term. Expiation. You're, you're being cleansed, imputing to me his righteousness and holiness as if I had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, having fulfilled myself all the obedience which Christ has carried out for me. If only I accept such favor with a trusting heart. So so don't miss what that's saying. It's saying that we are Righteous before God because Jesus did for us what we could never have done and in fact did not do. We broke every command of of God's. We could never keep them even for a moment or a day. We continue to sin over and over again, but not because of any merit we deserve. Christ took our place, washed us clean, died for our sins. And the result of that is justification. The result of that is, and I love how they define justification, as if I had never committed a single sin. That's how God sees you as you stand in Christ, as if you had never committed a single sin or had ever been sinful, as, as if you had fulfilled all the obedience of Christ, which you didn't and I didn't but he carried that out for us. And the way into this, the access point into this kind of relationship with God that declares us right with him is by trusting him, accepting this grace, this favor with a trusting heart. That's what we've got to do. That's all we've got to do is believe, trust, throw ourselves on his mercy. And then we get to stand in a righteous, justified position and one of the ways that we, we teach kids in Sunday school, and I, I learned this, that 
You teach kids justification by teaching them that to be justified means it's just as if I never sinned. And that's what it is. God looks at you as if you'd never sinned because Jesus took all your sin from you. That's the most crucial thing that we can believe as Christians. And it is the central doctrine of salvation. So, so yeah, we, we've talked about election and we've talked about this gospel call, this effectual calling, and we've talked about regeneration of the heart and talked about conversion and faith, belief and trust. But all of that is leading us to be justified. That's the, that's the point. And then ultimately glorified. Right? Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And he did that through Jesus. So there you go. Any questions that we can talk to on anything we, we talked about tonight? Justification in particular, but yeah. In, uh, in what you were saying, you said the law several times. Yep. The law is actually the Old Testament. Right. Doesn't the New Testament kind of supersede that law so you really shouldn't have to look at the Old Testament and go with the New Testament? Yeah, so, so Jesus says um, that he came to fulfill the law. Right, so Jesus lived this life under the law of God, under that Old Testament system, in our place and for us. So, so we are not obligated to live under the law of the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that the law doesn't have wisdom for us. It doesn't mean that there can't be things we learn about how life works best, you know, or those kind of things. But in terms of being obligated to obey the law, yeah, no, that's, that's done and over with for sure. Uh, because Christ has accomplished all that for us. So as we stand in Jesus, who had perfectly obeyed the law, um, yeah, we're not obligated to obey it. It can still be helpful to us in some regards. Um, I, I'm going to ignore the bacon things and stuff, but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's my personal preference. But, yeah, does that, does that answer your question? Yeah. Thanks. Anything else you guys want to talk about? And I'll be around for a bit afterwards too. And oh, Chris just walked in and he would love to talk to you about anything he didn't hear me say. And I'm sure he'll give you great answers. And I'm just giving you a hard time, bro. So yeah. Uh, Nathan uh, Duke is back there too. If you guys want to talk to him and me, I'm, I'm available. Anybody would be happy to talk. So yeah. Know what free will mm-hmm. has to do with it all. Sure. Will we hear about that? No. Uh, well, not. <laughs> well, so, yeah, that's a good question. I was kind of expecting that to be asked. So, uh, um, so it, it depends on what you mean by free will. Okay. <laughs> that's, it's a nuanced discussion. So, um, if by free will you mean that we. We just, we choose to do what we want to do. Yeah, we, we absolutely have free will. Uh, we can choose to sin as much as we want. That's before we're... Of salvation. Okay, yeah. Free will doesn't have I would say the Lord changes our will for us so that we do willingly come to him. But that's where the regeneration piece comes in, is that he gives us this new heart that actually wants to then obey him and love him. 
And so, yeah, we do. Have, I would say we, we act out that you can call it free will if you want. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. I would, I just kind of shy away from the free part in the sense that it's not free apart from God altogether. It's still dependent on God to get us to, to himself. Um, but, but we do actually ex- exhibit a will and we do actually do make those decisions. It's just the, it's the chicken or the eggs question, right? Of, well, do we just do that because we're able to do that? And I think that sin has made it impossible for us to actually just freely choose the Lord without his intervening work. So we got to get him to do that work for us to change our hearts so that we can willfully and joyfully come to him. That's, that's a little bit of a philosophical and nuanced question but, and answer, but mm-hmm. it's a hard one for sure. <laughs> and yeah. Is it accurate to say that we don't have free will in sin? We have such a sinful nature that we have no choice but to yeah. sin. Yeah, so but we willfully we, sin, yes. And, yeah. I, and I would agree with that. But we don't, sure. have, we don't have the, I'm trying to say it in the sense that we don't have the free will to do something different. Right. It's, it's in the DNA. It's all the way through to the yeah. toenails. And, yeah. and, um, and so then God, like you're saying, God is working on the heart and draws the heart and changes that. Yeah, I think that's really yeah, that's a really good explanation of it, and and I would agree with that. That so Adam and Eve, when we talked about their their innocence in the garden, truly had perfect free will, right? There was nothing that prohibited them from doing one thing or the other. Um, pretty much, the Westminster Confession says that. I mean, pretty much every every kind of Christian theological position would hold to that. Uh, but when they sinned, they plunged all of us into sin. And so we're free to sin. The question is, are we free to not sin and without Christ? And I don't think that we are. We need Christ to get us into a new life. And that's where regeneration enters that piece. And that's why I would put regeneration in front of faith. Because I think Christ has to get us to that point so that we will actually come to him and want to come to him. But that, yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Christians who would disagree with the way I articulated that. But I think that's that's my view on it, at least. So, yeah, I appreciate that, Nathan. That was helpful too. I was thinking about the deal with uh, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve used to walk and talk with God in the garden, mm-hmm. and after they sinned, they wanted nothing more to do with him. And yep. that has been systemic through. Everybody else yeah. really want, don't want to have anything to do with God. Yep. That's right. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that nobody um, comes to Jesus without wanting to come to Jesus. But he makes us so that we want to come to Jesus. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and nobody g- goes to hell without choosing to continue in rebellion and sin against Christ. But that's just the natural default state of the human heart, right? To just continually want to reject Jesus over and over. So again, that gets into a lot of other things, but um, thanks for that question though. I was expecting someone to ask it and you asked it. So way to go. I didn't even put you up to it. So <laughs> thanks. All right, well, let me pray for us. Then we'll, we'll head out and I will, I'll stick around. Chris and Nathan are also around. You guys can, if you want to chat with any of them about this stuff too, you're welcome to do that. Uh, Father, thanks for giving us the reminders, particularly of your justifying grace in our lives.
And we just absolutely want to acknowledge we cannot save ourselves. We, we have to come to you for mercy and for a, a right standing. And you've made the way for that by faith in Jesus and, and the work that he did for us. So we thank you for that. And we praise you for your goodness and kindness to us. We pray that as we walk out of here tonight, that we would um, walk out just loving you more and being more grateful for the salvation you've offered us in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.